What's up, Wildcatters? Have you heard about Collide yet? It's the newest community hub for the next generation of energy professionals. Collide.io is where you need to be if you're looking to connect, learn, and grow in this dynamic industry. And don't miss out on Collide GPT, our cutting edge AI chat designed specifically for the energy sector. It's like having an industry expert right at your fingertips. Join thousands of your peers who are already making the most of this incredible resource. Head over to Collide.io and sign up today. That's Collide.io. The future of energy is here. Don't get left behind. I, 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 Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Honored today to have as my guest, Ann Bradbury. Is it CEO? Is that the title? That is, yep. I like that. Chief Executive Officer of AXPC, the American Exploration and Production Council. You got it. Now, who are y'all? So AXPC represents the leading independent producers of oil and gas here domestically. So we have an onshore focus and we have a domestic focus. So if you think about who the big independents are, they're probably my member. So we have about uh, 30-something members, um, ranging from the largest independents, such as Conoco, to some of the um, medium and smaller, yet you know, public independents as well. And so, and we are their advocacy voice in Washington um, to uh, advocate on behalf of and educate policymakers on issues related to domestic oil and gas production. I'm going to say something with my outside voice that I probably shouldn't educate policymakers. I know. That's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> I'm kidding. There's, I'm kidding. It's a, it's a tall job. It's a big, it's a yeah, big job. Somebody's got to do it. So yeah. IPAA, are we friend, foe? How does that work? Very friendly. Okay. Uh, we, and do do y'all have different buckets you focus on? Or are you kind of doing the same thing? Yeah, we, um, we have very similar focuses. There is a lot of overlap um, and we collaborate a lot with IPAA. Generally speaking, when you look at the membership, mine, AXPC skews a little bit larger and more public and their skews a little more to the smaller independents. Um, you know, and because the, you know, the issues that a ConocoPhillips has is different than an issue that a, you know, smaller um, independent, you know, mom and pop has. And so, you know, we, we have, we take different perspectives, but we work very closely together. So issue de jour of the day, what's the big thing you guys are focusing on these days? So we do both legislative work and regulatory work on the sort of legislative side, the congressional side. There's a lot of talk of permitting reform right now, um, which is gets super weedy really fast, but it's all of the environmental statutes um, and permitting requirements that make it really hard to build anything in America these days, whether it's a pipeline or a wind farm. Um, and so uh, that's, I would say, the biggest area of focus right now on the Hill. And then on the regulatory side, it's like, oh, my God, who, you know, don't know where to start there. I would say we are focusing most of our efforts on the EPA and the new methane rules coming out, but then there's also the methane tax. We do a lot of federal lands work, so BLM, uh, DOI work. And then we, because I have mostly public companies, we also are very involved with the SEC and the new climate disclosure rules that they're working on. So it's quite a bit there. Yeah. 
I may be wearing my tinfoil hat right now, so pardon me, and it's totally appropriate to roll your eyes or say, yes, you are being a nut job, but do the quote-unquote enemies of oil and gas, is there really a contingent that is fighting this kind of guerrilla warfare through the EPA and various regulatory things that just want to kill the industry, or is it is it folks are just uneducated and so they kind of hear the last thing in there. Is is there an element of that in it, DC? There's definitely an element okay. of it. Yeah. I mean it's um that's not a tinfoil hat question at all. I didn't um, think it was. But, <laughs> but, but yeah. Um I mean you get just like, you know, on our side the the industry and industry supporters aren't necessarily monolithic. The the other side isn't monolithic either. So I think you get a mix of people that are just super anti-fossil fuel and want to see the industry go away. You have a mixed in with people that are just really uninformed, um, uh, but are in positions of power. And then you have people that are well-informed that are actually trying to make good decisions and do it in a constructive way. And so it's, it's, you really have a mix of all three. And the reason I kind of set up that question, because where I was going on the more serious part is, you know, they always talk about how horrific legislative processes are in general. I mean, that's the history of democracy and all. But on a topic that is so incredibly complex Mm -hmm. and what I don't think people appreciate is when you talk energy, it's really a water balloon, right? If you're going to push here, this side's going to pop out. And there are trade-offs that have to be made and there are dollars involved and all. I mean, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge. And I do think people, you know, the other side is fortunate because they can kind of reduce their position down to a bumper sticker, right? Which is, you know, something along the lines save of the like, yeah, save the planet, stop using oil and gas, fossil fuels are bad, right? And the reality is much more complicated than Can that. I get on my soapbox Please. for just a second? <laughs> oil and gas people, I've said this a million times, when we reduce things down to a bumper sticker and we say things like, Freeze a Yankee. It doesn't help our cause. <laughs> Please stop. Okay, go ahead. Right. No. Um, so one of the things that we've been working really hard on this year is something that we sort of refer to as energy education, which is just let's make sure policymakers understand energy fundamentals, which is, you know, people, not everyone knows that the U.S. is the biggest producer of oil and gas in the world, Right. People don't know that. People don't know that we have reduced emissions more than any country in the world. And the reason we have reduced emissions more than any country in the world is because of our increase in production of natural gas. Um, You know, it wasn't renewables. It was natural gas displacing coal. Um, And so we are really working on the first step in advocacy, again, is, is that relationship building and that education piece. So um, that's something we work a lot on. I forgot your question <laughs> that uh, I was answering. No, but no, but you were you were you're going down the path of it. It's it's when you have a really complicated yeah. legislative problem and the other side gets to play guerrilla warfare yeah. against you. How how do you navigate it? And I think you're right. Number one is education. Yeah. We're gonna start and try to get people to at least understand the basics. Exactly. And that, you know, I think the the biggest issue that we run into is policymakers that look at both energy production and emissions as if both sort of stop at the border, right? And neither of that is true. Like these are global commodities. 
and emissions clearly don't stop at the border, right? And so I hate to be crass, <laughs> but my line about this on the podcast is always there's not a peeing in a non-peeing section of the pool. Right, right, right. Mean, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if you just look at it from a US perspective, you know, it's it's you know, it's it's not that big of a deal if you're like, well, we're just going to reduce oil here and we're going to build more, you know, wind farms over here, which first of all, you can't do that either. But um but it simplifies the issue. But when you look at it from a global perspective, which is you know, the world benefits from our oil and gas. It's a huge national security advantage for us. Um, and by the way, U.S. emissions are like 13 percent of global emissions. And right. that number is falling. And the real the real problem is China. And, and you're, to a lesser degree, India. But it, exactly. those are the biggies. Yeah, those are the biggies. Their emissions are skyrocketing. And if you're not trying to address climate and energy issues while looking at these global problems, then like this is all for naught, right? Like it's it's just pointless. So, um, so yeah. So we try to just keep people keep. Can I add one more thing to that? Because because you were like hitting the nail on the head of what of what if if I could get the world to accept one point, it's that it's global, and we can't control those actors. Mm -hmm. We have to look at their behavior, and we have to adjust. If we could add one slight point to that in the messages, and we only have so much money that we can save the planet with. Mm -hmm. We don't have unlimited funds because that's just got to be brought into consideration. And I'll give my my one example. Electric vehicles. Yeah. Okay. You go to the Volvo website. They did a detailed study on where's the break even and or, you know, where's the break even between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine when it comes to carbon footprint from manufacturing hmm, on. Interesting. And it's it's actually, in, it's 150 pages. If you get a chance, it'll put you to sleep on the plane if you need to. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And the punchline is the way the world generates electricity today, it's call it 90,000 miles. If you generate electricity like Europe does, which is more renewables based, lower carbon, I think they say it's 60,000 miles or 65,000 miles. At the end of the day, we can debate, is that right, not right, whatever. That's still five years of a car. So you're saying you don't, what the Volvo study is showing is that there's no emissions benefit until you've been driving your car for 90,000 miles in the whole U.S. Wide, whole wide world, if you okay. use Europe power yeah. production, it's like 65,000 yeah. miles, yeah. which is five years of a car, mm -hmm. four, five, six years of a car. Is it really worth trillions and trillions of right. dollars right. to go EVs? And that's what the IRA did. The IRA did not say, we want lower emissions, market, y'all go settle it. They said, we want electric vehicles. Yes. And so the small little point, and I'm sorry I'm on my soapbox, no. but is if we could all say, hey, it's a global problem. We've got to deal with these actors. And oh, by the way, we've only got a fixed amount of money to do it. If we could look at it through that lens, I think if everybody, if, if people wanted to be intellectually honest and truly try to solve a problem, if we could all look through it at that lens, let's go fight there and not the way it feels like we fight. Completely agree. And you're also putting, there, there's a lot of risk associated with that policy as well. And that is, you know, are we going to be able to, you know, have a sufficient grid to power all of these electric vehicles? Are we going to have the sufficient... Um, you know, critical minerals to be able to build all of these vehicles. And do people want them? <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know that they do. Not not to the level that uh, 
that the administration is sort of betting on, right? I mean, I think their their new tailpipe rule assumes that like 70% of all cars sold in 2030 are electric vehicles. Now, I know that that number is increasing, but uh, you know, I don't see a world in which 70% of cars sold um are going to be electric vehicles within the next 7 years. Like that's really aggressive and uh, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to make ICE vehicles more expensive. And that's just not good for American consumers. Yeah. And it also leads to uh, kind of another point of if we make cars way more expensive, we're basically saying to the rest of the world, we're going to go save the planet and let them eat cake. I mean, if a poor village in Africa has to pay a lot for a car. That's bad. Right. I mean, that is the West telling the developing world, hey, we got ours tough. Right. And right. that's not good for world geopolitical stuff. We have to have a better solution than, you know. Right. And if you look at, you know, there's still a great, there's a huge emissions reduction opportunity to be had from additional coal to gas switching, both here domestically, but also globally. Um, and that doesn't cost a penny. It actually creates jobs in the U.S. and it makes us more energy secure. So, um, you know, there are there are a number of solutions out there um, that don't cost billions of dollars um, and that don't take away consumer choice. And I feel like those should be more of a focus of policymakers. I mean, if I mean, I've said this on the podcast again, so my listeners are going to tune out for the next two minutes as I talk. But the Marshall Plan for climate change is actually China, India, no more coal. We will finance your natural gas infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we'll, I mean, nobody prints money like the United States. So screw it, guys. We got this. We'll print the money for it. We'll make Europe kick in some. I don't know that we can talk. We can probably talk India into it. I don't know that we can talk China into it just because we're strategic enemies. And do they really want to be dependent right. on worldwide natural gas? But I would kind of say to to China, hey, even in World War II, oil was going everywhere. I mean, everybody was selling oil, you know, even with the Russian-Ukraine war and the embargo, oil's going everywhere. So right. I don't know that I would be that worried if I was dependent on LNG tankers showing up. But Yeah. And and they've you've probably noticed there have been a couple big uh deals that China's uh inked in the last week or two for for um for long-term contracts for LNG. And so, you know, their their approach is clearly like we need coal, but we need we need all of it, right? And uh I do think even just marginally shifting them towards more LNG and away from coal would have us would would probably outweigh the impact of all of the money we're spending on on EVs here in the US. I, I agree with that totally. The other thing I would do too if I was in charge and I was energy czar of the world and God help us if that actually happened. But I think when you look at the existing technologies today, you look at wind and solar, et cetera, we actually need some leapfrog type technologies. And it's probably going to have to be something in the way of carbon capture mm -hmm. if we really want to do something. I, I still kind of laugh that we have the arrogance that we're going to be able to control the climate if we just suck some CO2 out. But we'll put that aside for just a second. And so, you know, would 500 billion building charging stations be better than 500 billion at 
MIT, Harvard, Caltech, Rice, you guys and gals, go figure this thing out. Because I do feel like we need something that doesn't exist today if we're really going to deal with this. Totally agree. And you're not the only person that thinks that, right? I mean, I think that was Bill Gates's conclusion when he did this deep dive into how do we solve the climate issue. Uh, we know that there are technologies that are going to be needed. Um uh, to address this that don't exist today and certainly don't exist at scale, you know, carbon capture, direct air capture, uh, things of that nature are certainly, I mean, the, the, the technology is there, it just deploying them at scale, making them economical are really the big questions. Um, so, you know, I, I personally think that that is a much smarter way to spend our resources if, you know, to the extent that we're spending resources to address the climate issue than to sort of direct people into a particular energy source that they don't necessarily want to be directed into at enormous cost to American taxpayers. One of the things we did is, so I'm dating a British lady. She's lived here for many years, but at the end of the day, she is British. And we'll get on the podcast and I'll talk about Europe. And I get read the riot act at home. <laughs> Europe is 25 different countries. It is not a uniblock. Well, so what we started doing on Big Digital Energy, the other podcast I do around here, is we will deep dive one European country each week and talk about their energy yeah. usage. And one of the fascinating things that's come out of this that I didn't appreciate is France went all in nuclear in mm -hmm. the 70s, right? So I think 80% of their energy usage is nuclear that is europe's battery because they are exporting power to everyone else and so the reason that europe and we'll see if they actually have gotten away with it but to some degree have gotten away to this point with all the renewables they have is they have baseload power yep. in nuclear in france and if france says hey we're going to get rid of nuclear which they're talking about they're not building new ones that's going to be interesting. So that's a really interesting point that Europe is not monolithic, that there are a lot of different countries and perspectives. Um, I will say that if you look at, you know, Europe started turning away from and I'm, and I'm going to be I'm going to cast a wide net here. So, yes. you, you know, just I'm just warning you now. But Europe started turning away in many ways from developing their own energy resources through oil and gas development. Um, around the same time that the U.S. started developing, you know, the shale revolution kicked off in the early 2000s. And you, you know, there's just a very clear line that as the U.S. started, started, the shale revolution kicked off and we produced more oil and gas, prices went down, our energy security went up. And in Europe, their energy security goes down and their prices went way up. Um, and you know, I do think France like made a, has made a lot of good decisions. You look at Germany uh, that is really doubling down primarily on renewables, um, starting to to make some steps towards more natural gas, um, but is also increasing the amount of coal that they're burning because they need that baseload power. And, um, you know, their their embrace of natural gas has been very tentative since, you know, post Russia and uh, you know, I think that, you know, first and foremost, you know, a country needs to be realistic about their energy needs before you can talk about how are we going to improve the climate, right? Because if you're not providing energy through baseload power or through whatever sources you are, then uh, you're not going to successfully 
uh, reduce your emissions, right? And that's what you're seeing in Germany is their emissions are going up because they're burning more coal. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's exactly right. As I always kind of say, look, climate change is about lives in the future. If energy is expensive today or unreliable today, people die today. Yeah. So yeah. that we do have to look at it through that lens. I want to shift topics, though, and I'll give you, I'll go first. Okay. I'll, I'll give you my take. Uh, you see what you think. So the SEC is going to require you to publish your emissions. Um, everybody in energy initial thought was, oh, my gosh, that's so horrible. I actually think it's going to be really good because once everybody is forced to publish their emissions, people are going to sit there and go, well, the oil and gas companies are creating the product, but they don't emit a whole lot. They've done a pretty good job of capturing methane and CO2 out in the field. They do that pretty well. It's all these Amazon vans running around. They're actually emitting. And the bigger problem is the person that gets three Amazon deliveries a day instead of one, mm -hmm. as opposed to necessarily. I think it's going to want- Was that a personal attack? No. <laughs> <laughs> It was not. I have kidding. no idea of your Amazon. Your Amazon. Uh, I resemble that remark. There you go. But so I think at the end of the day, there's a there's a chance to maybe level set the discussion here of, look, hey, here's actually where the emissions are coming from, and let's have a more thoughtful discussion about it. Thoughts? I think that's a really interesting perspective. I. I don't know Pollyanna. that Pollyanna. Uh, no, <laughs> you can call me that. I, I don't know that I would disagree with it. Um, you know, most, you know, especially in, you know, I know in my industry, like most of our companies already disclose in some form or fashion, whether it's to the EPA or on their sustainability reports. Um, so there's a good deal of disclosure already, um, and I do think to your point, um, especially if they're moving away from the scope three you know, disclosures, which we think they may be because they're inherently um, unreliable um, and difficult to calculate um, and beyond our control, um, you, you, might, you might see that. So I think that's a good point. I do think that a lot of the issues that we're focusing on in that climate disclosure bill, um, uh, you know, would potentially bring some additional liability issues to oil and gas companies. And so you just want to make sure that those financial disclosures are not able to be weaponized because we know that we're still going to remain a target of a lot of sort of anti-fossil fuel, either regulators or activists. So um, I do think there's still work to be done within the regulations regardless, but I think that's an interesting perspective. And certainly when you look at um, U.S. oil and gas producers vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, too. Not that they would necessarily get captured in the SEC regulations, but uh, you do see that, you know, to the extent that the world needs energy, you want to get it from U.S. producers because we do have the most transparent and responsible production in the world. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, I can't believe for a second the Venezuela, I've never been to a Venezuelan oil field, but I can't believe it is cleaner and nicer than a right. US, uh, <laughs> US oil field. Um, although one of the embarrassing moments of my career, because I was a finance yeah. guy, right? And I show up out at the rig, and that's always comedy time, right? We've got the <laughs> money guy out here. What do we do? And my business partner, Mike Hines, great guy, is a man's man. I mean, he's the Marlboro man. I mean, 
you know, he cuts off his arm, he'd probably just tape it back on and he'd be fine. He he's that guy. He worked for Exxon for 13 years. He ran the J field for them, which is one of the nastiest, dirtiest fields out there, you know, <laughs> all this. So just a man's man. We are out there on the my first time out in the field. We're out on a rig. And I don't even know what possessed me to say this, but I kind of went, you know, it's really dirty out here. And Mike goes, please don't tell the company, man, you said that. You'll get your butt kicked, Chuck. And I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. I got it. But uh, that's funny. yeah, no, we, we, we do it cleaner. And, the th- and again, okay, so I'll take the next step. We're going to have to disclose this. My advice to the industry is, hey, we're going to have to disclose this anyway. Own the narrative. Mm-hmm. Say this is what it is. This is why it's important. You know, because um, and and I kind of equate that to ESG with my investors. I mm-hmm. used to go to because you know we were raising Energy Fund Six, and people would say, "Well, what's your ESG policy?" And I'd go, "What do you want it to be?" Well, I don't know. And I, we always talked. I think it was Justice Potter, the famous Supreme Court decision about pornography. I know it when I see it. Yeah, it was kind of that way with ESG. Investors would say, "I know it when I see it." The world right now has no idea what to make of all these emissions. They don't know what's good, bad. So go define it. Yeah. Be the first person to define it. Make the other side say, "No, that's not right." I'd rather go first. Yeah. And so I'll just put in a plug. So we developed our own like reporting template so that companies can start disclosing emissions in a more um in a more apples to apples fashion um because you know we are we are very pro disclosure and um we want to make sure that investors are able to understand um the emissions profile of our companies and so there was we brought a we tried to bring a sort of more consistent approach to how all of this was being reported um, and then that also has enabled us to kind of go back and show trends. And th- I, that I think gets the narrative point in part that you're suggesting is that there's a very clear downward trend of the emissions profile of our companies, whether you look at the EPA data, you look at ESG data, U.S. companies are getting better and better and better year over year in terms of their overall emissions uh, intensity um, uh, by, you know, of, of methane and GHG by almost every metric. Um, and we're really proud of that. And ESG isn't just environmental, right? Like that's certainly what everybody seems to think it is. And that's how they all talk about it. But there's also, I I think a lot of the companies that I work with at least, um, have really embraced the whole ESG issue to some extent because they're like, oh, you want to, you want to see my environmental performance. I'm happy to talk to you about that. I'm happy to talk to you about what I'm doing in the community. I'm happy to talk to you about my good governance practices. Like these are all, things that our companies have been doing for decades, um, especially, you know, on the S and the G side, uh, but haven't been characterizing it as ESG. Um, And so in some ways, ESG is an opportunity to tell our story um, about what we're doing on emissions, about what we're doing in communities that we operate and about, you know, the good governance practices that we bring to our companies. I mean, literally, I think one of the biggest untold narratives on the planet is the generosity of the energy Mm -hmm. business i mean oil went to minus 37 like literally you had to pay someone to take your barrel of oil Mm -hmm. now granted that was one day but at the end of the day i mean industry is devastated and i can't think of a major charity in houston that went under yeah Yeah. i mean people still cut checks and all and the 
And the thing I hate, and I told this to a very prominent member of the Houston energy finance community, I said, hey, the environmentalists would not have as much sway in the world if people knew you existed. And as ugly as this sounds, the fact you won't come on my podcast and just talk about all the charitable endeavors you've done. Well, I don't want to toot my own horn. You're not. Yeah. You're, you're defending the industry because everyone in the industry does that. So it's a really humble industry and I really love that about them, but you're right. Um, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of great stories that not everybody knows because of it. Yeah. So takes me to kind of something else I want to talk about. And again, I'll get on my soapbox. I'll throw it out there. You opine critique. However, I think as an industry, We've totally buried our head in the sand. We don't tell our stories. When we pop our head up to actually tell our stories, we're a bunch of engineers and we do it with facts and figures. Mm -hmm. And if you go look at the psychological studies out there, the three most effective ways to change somebody's mind are, number one, you just ask questions. Mm -hmm. That's why the Socratic method is really good. Two, you scare people. I think the environmentalists have done a good job of that. You scare them. For sure. Uh, three, you make them laugh. Not you laugh. Them laugh. The least effective way uh, on all the psychological studies is facts and reasons and numbers. And in my whole career, I think I've seen two effective energy ads. One is the, there, there've been a couple of variations of it. Uh, I forget who did it originally, but most recently energy transfer did, Hey, we're going on a first date and you know, the lipstick goes away because it's made out of petroleum products. And so slowly as this, this day is going along, everything that has petroleum in it goes away. I think that's actually pretty effective. I've seen that. You haven't seen it. Uh, So energy, uh, I've seen a couple of their ads, but maybe energy transfer Super Bowl commercial. Go Google it. And so I think that's actually pretty effective. It educates in kind of a funny way, Mm -hmm. connects on an emotional level. The second ad, I think the incredibly effective now, it was an internal ad for the industry. Natural Gas Partners, the big private equity firm. They they published an ad that says we've created more millionaires than anyone else in the business. <laughs> so if you're a management team, you're like, holy cow, I want to go with those guys. And, you know, because it hit on kind of a base emotional level. And so I just think we've advocated all sorts of responsibility for doing this. We don't tell our stories. And when we do, it's highly ineffective. Am I being too much the old man and grumpy? I don't. I mean, I, I, I hear this a lot. Um, I don't disagree with it. Um, I think that there are a few, I guess I would, I would, I would ask a couple questions back and these are questions that I struggle with too. Um, do we, I don't have the answer. Yeah, No, right. Um, and neither do I. Um, so what, what I focus on in my role is to impact policymakers, right. And, you know, by extension, um, you know, other people that impact policymakers. Right. But the you, we hear a lot about like changing hearts and minds. Right? right. And like I I really struggle with the question of do we need to be loved? Right. Does does this industry need to actually win over hearts and minds? Because what I know is that we are providing an essential service right. um, for America, for the world. And I know that when that essential product becomes scarce, 
through, you know, unreliability or increased costs or what have you, that then all of a sudden people really want and need our products. Um, and so like how important is that emotional connection, I guess, is the question that I struggle with. Well, you, you bring up this point because the thing that might be the most effective thing we could do in the industry, not that it would make us loved, but maybe make us feared and, and the like and give us some sway is one day, eight o'clock in the morning, email goes out, no petroleum products for right. 48 hours. I now, mean, unf unfortunately, people would die in that yeah. scenario. It would be really bad. Yeah, yeah. But you grind, you grind the world to a halt and, okay, guys, yeah. you know, you really don't want us around. I don't think that's the right answer, but you bring up that point. It, we at least ought to discuss it. Yeah. And, and I, to me, when you get it like your three options, I do think that's, you know, that is a, a facts and figures, right? It, it is educating people on like, Hey, what is your life like if you don't have petroleum products in it? Like it's yeah. it's not good. You don't want to live that life, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are probably, you know, industry could probably do a better job of communicating that. But I also know that um, you know, at the end of the day, when people do understand it, you know, one way or the other, if it's not available to them or if it becomes more scarce or becomes more um expensive they're they send a pretty clear message that like no we need energy and we want it affordable and we want it reliable um and beyond that they don't think a lot about it and yeah. it's kind of a luxury that we have in this country so another thing that i'll say and i get flamed on twitter for saying this so sorry guys i'm going to say it again um Generally speaking, in America, I think we celebrate success. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, you know, we we celebrate Steve Jobs. Bill Gates has gone crazy, so we don't celebrate him anymore. But generally speaking, we 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 celebrate success. I think one of the issues that happened historically with energy is we're somewhat countercyclical. Mm -hmm. So high energy prices, we're doing really well. The rest of the world. Uh, United States is suffering. Right. I mean, it's just, right. that's how it's always. And unfortunately, I don't think we have displayed humility when we have been at that point. And it's unfortunate because we're almost the only energy, I mean, the only industry that needs to do that because tech is roaring, going great. Elon Musk can be as obnoxious as he wants mm -hmm. because we're doing well, you know? So Jeff Bezos can go buy his big, huge yacht because generally speaking, if he's doing well, the economy's doing well. I think that's part of the problem, too. For sure. I mean, you have, you know, the president of the United States who will go on television and demagogue the price gouging that, you know, <laughs> right. somehow companies that have no ability to set prices <laughs> are engaging in. Right. It's, it's And they absurd. have net income margins that are right. less than the average S&P 500 company. Exactly. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, Apple and tech companies that do actually set their prices are making 10 times more and everybody celebrates that as a great American success story. Yeah. Um, it's really frustrating. And, um, you know, if, if, you know, unfortunately energy is, is very easy issue to demagogue and, um, you know, it's something that we have to deal with because every time prices go up, um, you hear it from, you know, a lot of different corners and it's a struggle. One of the things we did at digital wildcatters when, Oil was kind of hitting its peak right at kind of the the Russian invasion of mm -hmm. Ukraine. So call it a year, year and a half ago, is we ran around with just our credit cards and we were buying people gas. Oh yeah, yeah, and and we were recording it and kind of our our, our story was and we meant it was hey, 
well, it wasn't minus 37 three years ago. I got fired. Yeah. And so I understand the suffer. Oil's expensive now, so I'm doing a little better. I know it's making you suffer. Hey, we want to buy you some gas. And, I mean, we actually, I think, connected with folks on an emotional level. We got a lot of good publicity from that kind of virally from shooting it out across social media, as well as just the people that we bought gas for. I mean, I got hugs, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And and so I... That was a really tough time. I mean, that was... Yeah. Gas was what, like, it was, at least in D.C., it was close to $5 a gallon. Like, yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really was. And you realize that people... And, and kind of one of the things Dan Pickering, the, the big investor, was doing is he was monitoring when he would get gas, how many people stopped at $10, $15 mm, versus yeah. Yeah. 15.83, which meant they filled, filled up their tank. Yeah. And it was dramatic. Yeah. Kind of over a three month period, you know, it was dramatic. And so a lot of my companies also made very generous contributions to Ukraine aid efforts, too, because, you know, I think they you know, as, as, you know, they were being accused of, you know, war profiteering or what have you, you know, they, you know, they kind of wanted to um, put forward this really important effort to sort of also show solidarity with the people of Ukraine. And I think, you know, collectively, they donated tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars to that effort. So it is, to your point, it's a, it's a very generous um, industry um, and very resilient when prices go to negative 87. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let's close on this. Okay. I am going to make you energy czar, not of the world, but of the United States. So whatever you say goes, you can rule with an iron fist if you want to, however, however you're looking at it, what are we doing in Anne's world? That is a great question. Um, Okay, I'll try not to get too soapboxy here, but you I soapbox yeah. <laughs> soapbox away and 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 read me the 172 edicts you're um, doing on the first day. For yeah, I, I don't have that many. I might um, if you give me a little time. Uh, so first, I'll say that I think one of the big frustrations from where I sit is the lack of any sort of thoughtful energy policy in this country. Right? I mean, even within this administration. Um, you have totally conflicting goals, right? Like they clearly want to, um, you know, force a shift away from fossil fuels, but they also want to keep energy really affordable and reliable at the same time. Right. And these, like, these goals are in conflict with each other fundamentally. Um, so, you know, I think first and foremost, let's craft a thoughtful energy policy on, on how does the U S view energy in the U.S. and and including in a, in particular domestic energy production, right? Like, what do we want our role uh, to be in the world? Um, so, I think if if you went through that exercise, then you would come hopefully come to the conclusion that we want abundant, affordable, and clean energy, right? Like the most abundant possible, the most affordable possible, and the cleanest possible, because we want to lead the world in uh, the cleanest molecules produced. Um, and so to the, if that was the goal, and I would hope that that was the goal, um, you know, just, I, I don't think you need to do a lot to, to achieve that, frankly. I mean, if you look at the shale revolution of the early 2000s, most of that happened because, uh, you know, hydraulic fracturing is regulated by the states and the federal government kind of took a light touch approach to that. 
um, and states were able to regulate it in a really thoughtful and like regionally appropriate way. So, okay, so if those are the goals, affordable, reliable, clean energy, I think the first thing you have to do is kind of pull back on some of the regulatory um, issues that you're seeing today. And there is absolutely an appropriate place for regulation, uh, but it should be done in sort of a collaborative and rational approach with the industry. Um, so rational regulation, um, first and foremost. Um, you know, that was the that was the thing that got me is when we would talk about the shale revolution and fracking, you know, are you... I'm not talking politics here, but arguably you could say George Bush was our most conservative president, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really where the the shale revolution started. Mm -hmm. And Bush, true to kind of his core principles, states ought to do it, yeah. not the EPA. Then you had arguably, except maybe till now, but arguably you had our most liberal president, mm -hmm. Obama. At that point, the U.S. energy business was jobs, union jobs, et cetera. They took the same approach. Yeah. The, they're, they're, I mean, oh, sure, the EPA did a little bit more mm -hmm. under mm -hmm. Obama than it did at Bush, but their energy policies were basically the same. It wasn't until uh, we became a smaller piece of the S&P 500, less important and the like, that you really saw the ramp up in the EPA. I think that's a really important point. Now, I will say, you know, I actually wasn't representing this industry during the Obama administration. I was on the Hill during the Obama administration. Um, and it didn't feel particularly friendly at the time. Right. Um, but if you look back rhetorically, he would talk in the State of the Union about how great U.S. natural gas is and how, you know, the 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 production um, and utilization and export of natural gas, what a great thing it was going to be for America and the world. Can you imagine this president saying that? <laughs> like, you, you, you can't even get your head around it. Um, we were digging around in some old Obama archives um, uh, like last year when prices were really high. And they when, when gas prices were high during the Obama administration, they put out this whole thing on how they're doing all of these great things to develop, to maximize production on federal land, to increase production. And, and like, you just can't fathom that happening under this president, right? So um, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel friendly for the industry. Right. But if you look at it, you are 100% right that the Obama administration, especially as the, and especially in terms of how they viewed natural gas, um, really al still allowed industry to kind of flourish. Um, and then you look at this administration and like there's been, almost a complete halt to federal leasing, um, you know, increase in royalty rates. I mean, more regulation than any anyone in the industry that I've worked with has ever seen in a short amount of time and more aggressive. Yeah. And, and the thing to me is it's dishonest. Well, you have the permits to go drill, but I can't drill. I can't lay a pipeline to right. get the gas out and you're not going right. to let me flare. Right. right. Okay. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Got yeah. me. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And, and I have to wait a year to get permits sometimes. And, you know, if I, if I go over to Texas, I can get it in six days. So the, the one thing the Obama administration did, and like, I hate the fact that they did this, but I'm actually kind of impressed. Supposedly, um, permitting processes went from digital to manual. So, hmm. 
historically, uh, under George Bush and the beginning of the Obama administration, you would fly, file electronically for your permits and all. And they changed it to, no, you have to send paper copies of the permits for us to do. And those were able to get lost on desk. Well, we oh, don't know it. Yeah. And so, so, so I, I've heard that story. I believe it to be true, huh. but, but that was a, a neat little way of, we're going to slow this down and no one's going to know why. Yeah. So. Well, you know, it's interesting because just about six months ago, BLM revised the number of, um, unused permits. If you remember the Biden administration kept being like, the industry is sitting on 9,000 APDs. Mm. And then very quietly, they were like, actually, it's like five or 6,000. Right. <laughs> and it wasn't because they started drilling all of a sudden. They just miscalculated. So whatever right. that system is, it is fairly antiquated. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the other thing I'll just note that I think is always important to remember is it was under the Obama administration that we lifted the oil export ban. Um, which was probably the most significant energy policy development in like the last two decades, right? I mean, it yeah. was other than maybe uh, the Bush administration, you know, uh, uh, allowing states to regulate fracking. Um, so it was a really big deal. Um, and, uh, you know, that was I was actually working for Speaker Boehner and Speaker Ryan at the time. And so got to kind of help get that across the finish line, which was really fun. But that was, you know, a, a negotiation with the, with the Obama administration um, they got some, you know, renewable tax credits for it in exchange. Um, but, you know, again, they 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 at least brought an element of, um, you know, rationality to their energy policy that, you know, is is sometimes missing today. Yeah. So, um, yeah. OK, I'm going to go now. I'm energy czar. OK, I am going to command each and every energy company in the United States to give variable pricing of whatever it is, gasoline, electricity, based on regulations they want passed. So, Chuck, you can pay, you know, $2 for gasoline if Congress will pass these three things. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're paying $3 today. If they pass this, I'm going to have to charge you four. And I think one, we should be doing that because it educates too. I think you might even be able to, you know, it's kind of like that. Hey, will you pay more for electricity if it comes from renewable? You ought to, we ought to start bifurcating the pay. If you truly believe that methane emissions should be zero on all this, mm -hmm. gas stations ought to sell zero emission methane gasoline and you're going to pay $8. And so I think they ought to be using price to educate. And I've never seen that. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know how that works. Well, like I came a, up with it commodity. after a bottle of yeah, wine. Yeah. So it worked really well. I, I like yeah. I, it's an interesting idea. If you're if these are commodities, right, because I only represent upstream too. Right. like I don't know how to do that, but it's interesting. But I will say, I mean, the only sort of version of that that I'm aware of is with the certified gas, um, you know, market. Um, but there just aren't a lot of, I think at the end of the day, I don't know how many people are willing to pay more for lower well, emissions that, and, products. And that, that would potentially be the point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so maybe it's, it's less the stick of higher, uh, you know, stick of higher prices pay it. Cause we know most people aren't going to do mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just the carrot of, 
if you will call your congressman and ask for these three things, we could lower it 82 cents yeah, a gallon yeah. or something. I, Because you touch the general population literally millions of times a day. Yeah. Everybody fills up their car. Everybody pays their electric bill. You have this communication. Just lay it out for people. Right. Anyway. And I think the I think one of the things that's so impactful about gas prices, just sort of as a side note, is that like it's on every corner, right? right. <laughs> it's like more prominent than the price of milk. Because even if you're not buying it, you know what it is. Yeah. Um, Sign this petition yeah. and we'll knock yeah. five cents off. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, th I think there's a powerful way that you could use that. And I think we're just too scared to do it. Yeah, it's 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 complicated, but it's a good thought. I do think I I totally agree that price is the most impactful message that we have, and it is something that we know that politicians are most afraid of too. Yeah. That. And I said there were two great ads in energy. The Biden stickers saying "I did this" that was actually pretty effective too. I think that was that was quite amusing. Yeah. Yeah. So, how do folks reach you? Who, what kind of folks do you want reaching you? What do you need help with? Yeah, so our website is axpc.org. Um, uh, so feel free to check it, check us out there. Um, but we do have a um, a grassroots center where you can sort of sign up and get Washington updates or interesting facts and figures from us that we try to push out to kind of advocate to educate. Uh, people in our network and have them help advocate for us. And then you'd also get an alert if Washington is doing something impactful that, you know, it'd be helpful to hear from constituents on to, to help you write your congressman. Um, so go to our website. It's super easy to sign up for that uh, uh, and to get those those updates. Um, we also have, you know, we're also on Twitter and Instagram and, um, you know, both to kind of keep folks informed, but also to highlight a lot of the great things our companies are doing. We like to do that, too. So. Cool. Well, thanks for coming yeah, on. Thanks. It was a pleasure. This was fun. Cool.